Let us open our scriptures to Ephesians 4 for our scripture reading. I'm going to read and ask you to follow along. Would you stand, please, in the honor of the reading of God's Word and follow as I read. And I'm going to pick up with Ephesians 4.11 and read down through verse 16. Ephesians 4.11 And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Thank you. You may be seated. Children's Church is released at this time, so you may go. And I would like to lead in prayer at this time, so would you join me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we pause right now and look to you in prayer. And once again, our Father, we are reminded how much we love you, how much we owe you, how awesome and immeasurable you are. We bow in worship, and may we truly be in a spirit of reverence right now as we seek your face. We want to lift up the name of Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, the God-man, the one who came to earth to be our Savior. And we just want to proclaim him today as our Lord and Savior in all that we do. And Lord, we also recognize your Holy Spirit, the ministry of your Spirit in our lives, his indwelling, his filling, his teaching ministry. And we ask, Lord, that you would, through your Holy Spirit, teach us today. We have many on our prayer list. I want to mention for Bob Jonasey recovering from kidney stone procedure, and Charlene Kibbe, who is battling cancer and in great need, for our friend Nicole Barber, who's battling bone cancer and also needs your help. Praise you, Lord, for answered prayer for Elida Powell, recovering from her surgery on her feet. Please, Lord, be with Luke Fall, recovering from a serious kidney cancer. We pray for Bud Orris today as he awaits some procedure on his heart. Please, Lord, be with the Willis's daughter, Bridget, for Lexi, for Joni Showquist, for Howard and Sylvia Messer, for Mrs. Elgersma, James' mother, for Pastor David Denny today, for Gene Seitz, Mike Tucker, 
Skip and Pat Miller, Shelley Lowry, Sherry Plymail, Marilyn Nelson, Ryan Simmons, and our own Carol Patton and Jim Willis. We pray, Lord, for all these ones with various health needs. We ask, Lord, that your healing hand would be upon them. We also want to remember to pray for our missionaries. Uh, we think of Aaron S., who is serving in a special place. And I pray, Lord, that you would be with her because it is uh, a difficult place. Some of the details cannot be mentioned, but I just pray for her. Uh, for the students that have been ministered through Campus Bible Fellowship, uh, we pray, Lord, you continue to work in and through all of our missionaries. We want to pray for Israel today. There is so much unrest and hurt there. And now there's unrest in our country because of it and division. We pray for our country, Lord. The moral foundations have crumbled. Uh, things are being promoted that are ungodly. Uh, your view of the family is under grave attack like never before. And so we ask you, Lord, to help us to stand for what is true and right and to speak your truth in love. And now, Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you would continue this process of teaching us and molding us and shaping us into the image of Christ. And we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. When a finely tuned orchestra plays a symphony, each of the instrumentalists must play their own diverse part within a unified whole. The various sounds produced among the instruments in a, an orchestra combine to reveal a design and a plan. There may be an opportunity for a solo once in a while, but even the soloist is supported by the orchestra, and that is part of the whole grand design of the musical presentation, which is intended to be pleasing to the ear if it's performed properly. And you notice a symphony cannot be played alone. It requires each instrumentalist to play his or her part. At times, this might even mean that some member of the orchestra sits in silence and quietness. Timing is essential, and therefore a conductor is needed to lead it, to set the pace, to instruct the members of the group so that they know when to play and how loud or how soft in order to produce what the author intended. An orchestra serves as an analogy of the church. And I'm hoping that you can see how obvious that is. God is the author of the production. The members each play an essential part. Leadership is needed. And these are the kind of things that are being said in Ephesians chapter 4. Now earlier in Ephesians, Paul was commending them for their love toward all the saints. Back in chapter 1, verse 15. 
He went on to say in chapter 2, So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens of the saints and members of the household of God. Now it's chapter 2, verse 19. So this begs the question, how are we progressing in our love for one another and our unity of the Spirit? This subject just keeps coming up in Ephesians. Um, every chapter, something about unity, something about fitting us together. Remember all the parts about the Jews and Gentiles coming together, what a mystery that was? Now let's take a moment to look where we've been and where we're going as we study Paul's letter to Ephesians. And just in a very sweeping way, Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 present the salvation and the doctrine of the church. And so the first three chapters were about teaching, laying this groundwork of truth, helping us to understand our salvation and how we fit together into the body of Christ. Now we're into chapters 4 through 6, and we're well into chapter 4. And this last half of the book presents the behavior of the church, stressing how we are to live. Uh, sometimes we use the word practice, you know, doctrine and practice, or teaching and behavior is the idea there. And again, it's important to note how unity just keeps coming up. For instance, in Ephesians 2, 13 to 22, uh, we read about the unity in the household of God by declaring the church is like one new man with one body, one nation, one house, and one temple. All those ones come up in that part in chapter 2. And then we saw in chapter 4, seven more ones are mentioned. All, you know, underlining the idea of, of unity. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. And so Paul just keeps emphasizing and re-emphasizing the necessity of believers to be unified and how we are to promote this together. Okay, so you're with me right now? We're all in unity, right? We're all thinking the same thoughts together. Okay, good. Now, the practical side of Ephesians 4 is right there in verse 1. Here's the hinge of the book. We've covered this already, but let's go back to Ephesians 4.1 just for a moment. He says, I there are a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In the first three chapters, he lays out all this doctrine, and then he comes to chapter 4, verse 1, and he says, now I'm going, to exert, I'm going to exhort you, I'm going to urge you to walk in a manner worthy. And you notice the Apostle Paul likes to use the word walk. And many of you, you've heard this a number of times. Some of you have been saved for years and years, and you know that walking is an analogy of living day by day. The Christian walk is the Christian life. And so Paul uses that term here in chapter 4, verse 1, and uh, he's going to bring that up again as we uh, progress through this chapter. In fact, look at chapter uh, 4, verse 17, if you will. He repeats the idea of walk there. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So walking in, in verse 1 kind of goes through that whole first section. He brings it up again in verse 17. 
And so we want to see that for, for Paul, life is a walk. It's daily. It's step by step. It's a pace. It's plodding along. That's how we're to look at our lives. So the picture of life as a walk. Now with that in mind, the remainder of the book, now this isn't the whole book of Ephesians, but it's from where we are right now until the end. One way that it could be outlined is just keeping that thought of walking going, and you have today, walking in unity. Chapter 4, verse 11 to 16. And then the next paragraph, walking in holiness, part 1, and walking in holiness, part 2, is uh, the rest of chapter 4. You come to chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, walking in love. So this idea of walking, we're going we're gonna to walk our way through the rest of Ephesians, okay? We're going to live our way through how this shakes out. So I want you to grasp that. As chapter 5 continues, the next paragraph is walking in light and what that means in chapter 5, verses 7 to 14. And then we have walking in wisdom. And that carries us down through the end of uh, chapter 5. And into chapter 6. Several parts there. And then finally, walking in strength. Now, is that the only way to outline Ephesians or the last part? No. But I think, and it's, it's not even a profound thing. But it's helping us to see that the last part of Ephesians is about how we're to live, how we're to go day by day. And some of the things that we need to be watching for are unity, holiness, love, light, wisdom, and strength. Those are the topics that Paul covers in this broad brush view of how he encourages us to live our life. So what we're seeing is the reality of the unity of the church in Christ. It's got to be recognized, but guess what? It's also got to be learned. The unity of the Spirit doesn't just happen. We have to learn it. We have to teach it. We have to promote it. And guess what? You have to put it into practice. I can't do it for you. In fact, I can't even do it for myself because we all need the Lord to help us to do it. So our outline today reflects all that. Point number one, walking in unity must be learned, verses 11 to 13. The second thought is walking in unity is based on sound doctrine, and I want to talk about that for a moment today in, in verse 14. And then thirdly, walking in unity honors Christ as our head. So that's where we are in this next section. We touched on verses 11 and 12 last time. Let's go back to verse 11. Walking in unity must be learned. And let's look at Ephesians 4.11. Again, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now, when we were talking about the gifts of Christ last time, we offered these as Paul's examples. And we also tried to point out that this is not an exhaustive list. In fact, this is a short list of specially gifted leaders Remember we went back and, and at least referenced Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, we got Ephesians 4, and what? 1 Peter 4, those four passages. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. Those four passages talk about the gifts. And none of those passages is exhaustive. 
they all give us little insights into how we serve Christ by serving one another. But this section is focused on these specially gifted leaders, some of which were only temporary. Now, I ask you to think about this for a moment. Do you believe there are apostles today in the church? Some Christian cults, and we call them Christian cults because they claim Christ, even though they're false. Some Christian cults claim that there are apostles today. And I've even met some people that told me that they're an apostle. I wanted to tell them, no, you're not, but I didn't tell them that. But, but, um, but there are some people that teach and think this. Why is it that there are no apostles today? Well, because of what the Scripture says about apostles. They had to be appointed personally by the risen Christ. And according to 2 Corinthians 12, they showed the signs of an apostle, which included performing miracles, even raising the dead. That's what an apostle was. Ephesians 2.20, the book that we're studying, says it was the apostles and prophets who laid the foundation of the church. So these first two categories, apostles and prophets, were obviously temporary because they were fulfilling a designated thing that had to happen, and that was to get the truth out to the people, write, write it down in the scriptures and record the Bible for us, and the New Testament completes the Bible. The prophets, some of which are mentioned in the book of Acts, uh, others like Mark and Luke would be called evangelists, these different gifted people were part of the founding of the church. There are whole denominations that teach that we need to refound the church, that we need to reproduce the day of Pentecost. And I'm here to tell you, it cannot happen. You cannot reproduce the day of Pentecost. It's already happened. The church has been founded, and now we're somewhere in the superstructure waiting for the Lord to come as you look at the various metaphors that Paul gives. So apostles and prophets, those offices closed. One of the proofs of that, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament office of prophet was closed for 400 years until John the Baptist appeared as the last one. And then uh, the evangelists that wrote down the scriptures, like Mark and Luke, associated with the apostles. Apostles wrote most of the New Testament. So we need to see this temporary nature or we're going to go off on some area where we're going to be led into error. But there's these, these last two terms that we've said we kind of combine into one office, and that is the shepherds and teachers. Uh, the Greek grammar makes it such that they should be hyphenated. But I want to make this point. Not all teachers in the church are shepherds, but all shepherds are to be teachers. Now, I know that you know that um, the New Testament teaches shepherd, sometimes translated pastor in this passage, um, is synonymous with elder and the word for bishop or overseer. And these terms come up in places like 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, Titus 1, 5 through 9, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. The scriptures in general support the fact that there's requirements 
there are um, different requirements that must be met for a man to fill the office of shepherd or teacher. So this is not to say that there are no other teachers. It's to say that the shepherds must be teachers. Okay? And again, 1 Timothy points that out. Titus declares that. And uh, 1 Peter 5. Now, looking at this next verse now, verse 11 mentions these specially gifted leaders that Jesus gave to the church, but then he says why they were given in verse 12 and 13. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. This speaks to the immediate purpose and a long-term purpose of coming up in verse 13. Spiritual gifts have an immediate purpose in the sense that all believers need to be equipped. And when he says here in verse 11, to equip the saints, believers need to be taught. The word that's used there for equipping is speaking of the idea of preparing, teaching, giving the people the tools that they need. That's what I'm trying to do right now. In the pulpit ministry, the, one of the main things that I bring is not only to declare the gospel and make sure that we know that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, but that the saints, the believers, get challenged and strengthened and equipped in the truth so that we can go out and reach the, the world for Christ. And so to equip the saints refers to the teaching ministry, which should be the regular activity of the church when we gather. Does it seem like that to you when we gather? Is that what we do? I hope so. Because I'm up here wanting you to grasp this and, and hold on to it and draw from it. Now, that verse in verse 12 also speaks about building up the body. And again, as the scriptures are taught, the saints are equipped, but then that building up of the body takes place as you and I receive the truth and help one another put it into action. To build up the body means to strengthen the faith of one another. Now, why might you need your, strength, your faith strengthened? Well, I'll tell you, one of the main reasons is to overcome temptation to sin. To overcome the, the tendency to become cold in your faith. To walk away from the scriptures and prayer. To stop attending church. Stop being with other believers. And to pull back. We need to be built up and strengthened because there's always that temptation. And sin, you know, separates. When we sin, we're wanting to pull back from the Lord. And the, the remedy is to confess it, right? To come to the Lord and make it right and draw back in fellowship. But if we do not confess our sins, what happens? Coldness starts to enter in. We don't want to be with other believers. We're not praying like we should. We're not reading the scriptures because we're feeling uh, the, the separation and we're allowing guilt to dominate. We need to build up one another by encouraging one another to overcome the temptation to sin. Remind one another what is right. And it's not to say that we go to one another and say, well, tell me what your sins were. But to say, you know, how are you doing in the Word? Are you praying? Are, are you 
walking with the Lord? Are, are you getting victory? Are, are you overcoming the fear that's paralyzing you or whatever? We need one another to help us do that. And as we strengthen one another, then we will be able to reach lost people. So this immediate purpose of these spiritual gifts is to equip the saints and for the body to be built up. But there's also a long-term purpose. And verse 13 speaks to that. And some of the ways uh, Paul breaks this down, we kind of have to analyze for a moment. So let's see how we do. Verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, if you notice, there's four phrases there. So let's work our way through these four phrases. Are they saying the same exact thing, or are they giving us nuances? Are they separate things? We've said that the immediate purpose of these gifts is that we would be equipped so that we can build up one another. We can have the tools that we need and the knowledge that we need so that we can help one another to grow and be strong together. We need each other. That's verse 12. But then he says about the unity of the faith. He says in verse uh, 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. There's some Bible commentaries that say uh, that'll never happen until we get to heaven. And you know, in its perfection, for us to be perfectly perfect and unified in every way. Well, that's true because we don't know everything, but that's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying this is not going to happen until we get to heaven. He's talking about what's going on now and what he's referring to by the unity of the faith is what I would call doctrinal accuracy. We need to know the right teaching. Remember, whenever you hear the word doctrine, don't think of some dusty old theology book. Oh, no, doctrine, you know. Yeah, we had survey of doctrine, you know, in, in some class or something. No, doctrine is teaching. And it's teaching about any subject that God is interested in. And he's interested in all the world of truth. And so doctrine is the teaching. But we need our teaching to be accurate. Our teaching must be true to God's word. It must be consistent. And that's why, as you listen to me talk, I, I hope you have your Bible open, and I hope that you're not only listening, but saying, is what pastor is saying lining up with Scripture? And if something comes up that does not seem to line up, I want you to ask me. And, you know, many of you have been good enough to do that. Like, hey, pastor, you said something, and that didn't really make sense to me. Well, let me explain. Once in a while, I might be wrong. Could you imagine such a thing? <laughs> oh <laughs> uh, yeah it happens but but I, I do want you to know i strive so hard to be accurate when i'm in i'm in this situation i want i want to be so careful what i say because i want it to be right so the unity of the faith is talking about the body of truth not how we believe but what we believe okay so that's doctrinal accuracy and i ask you how important is that because I know some people that uh, they'll choose a church and doctrine doesn't seem to be important to them. I'm going to go to the church because my friend goes there. I'm going to go to that church because I, I really like the style of music they have. But what about their teaching? Doesn't that have to line up? I sure hope it, it has to for you because that's what Paul is saying. 
one of the long-term purposes of spiritual gifts is that we have doctrinal accuracy, that we reach the unity of the faith. But now notice the next phrase, the knowledge of the Son of God. Is that exactly the same thing or is that something different? Well, it's something different. He says the unity of the faith. He's talking about what we teach, that it's accurate. But the knowledge of the Son of God really begins to emphasize in the area of discipleship, where we know who Jesus is in deeper ways. This past week, I attended an ordination council, and it took a whole day, you know. And for five hours, 20 pastors like me grilled this man and and he stood up against it he did okay but uh i i I give him credit because it's not easy to go through but but it's something that i believe is important for a man to be set apart for the gospel ministry to be tested and one of the things that he mentioned quite often was the the um, person and works of christ have you ever heard me say that Yes, the doctrine of Christ. That's, so, that's foundational. Who he is and what he did. Thank you. Who he is and what he did. That's, that's so important. And that's who we are in Christ. You wouldn't attend a church that doesn't agree with who Jesus is and what he did. That's the most basic of basic. And how do we know that? Well, from the doctrine of Scripture. And so that's another basic doctrine. And all the other ones, the doctrine of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, his gifts, who man is, how sin came about, God's creation, and then how Jesus saved us and redeemed us, not to mention what's going to happen in the future. All those things are so important. But where he's talking about the knowledge of the Son of God, we're talking about the importance of discipling. For a believer to grow, they've got to know who Jesus is and what he did. And they've got to be clear on that so that from there they can grow in the understanding of the other truths of Scripture. Notice the next phrase. We're looking at Ephesians 4.13. He says, Until we attain to the unity of the faith, that's doctrinal accuracy, the knowledge of the Son of God, that's discipling. And then he says, To mature manhood. This refers simply to spiritual growth and the maturity of all believers. And when it says manhood, it's just talking about personhood, okay? So I know... We live in a culture where, wow, everything is about gender now. But that's not what this is about. The goal here is to produce mature believers. It has nothing to do with male and female. We're all one in Christ. It's saying mature manhood would be the emphasis for spiritual growth to bring everyone to maturity. You know, you know how I've, I say, for instance, how long I've been pastoring. And it's been a while. And I have pastored some who are 20 year, in their 20s who are more mature than believers in their 60s. Have you ever met anything like that? And thankfully, I don't know anybody like that here, so I'm not picking on anybody. But I, I, sometimes I marvel at somebody, you've been saved all this time and you don't know these basic things? You know, that troubles me as a pastor. And I want to urge them and push them. So no matter how old you are, we need to be growing in maturity. Now, this young man in the ordination council, he made some mistakes. I sat there thinking, whoops, didn't get that one right. Ooh, you know, 
And he admitted, I'm still, I'm still learning. He was very humble. I give him credit. And you cannot expect somebody who's young and hasn't had a lifetime of experience to get up and, and be where someone else should be able to do that, right? Notice this next phrase in verse 13. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of God. What is that? Is that the same thing that he's been saying? We've said doctrinal accuracy, discipleship, spiritual growth and maturity. But this last phrase seems to point toward leadership development. In the last part of verse 13, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of God. This is talking about attaining a certain level of understanding and accomplishment in your study. And so, although it may not specifically be talking about leadership training, that idea is in those words, the process of bringing mature Christians uh, along is going to lead to the training of leaders. And we need leaders, don't we? We need leaders who are young. And we need teachers. And as I said, not every teacher is a pastor or elder, but every pastor, shepherd, elder must be a teacher. Well, walking in unity must be learned. And that's what verses 11 to 13 are about. That's why Jesus gave these gifted leaders, because teaching is important. What did Paul tell Timothy? Study, sweat, put effort out so that you can know and do the things that you're called to do. And so this is why God gave gifted leaders to the church, first apostles and prophets to record the Bible and to establish the church, evangelists to spread the word and get the churches settled, and then shepherd teachers continue on to this day in the teaching ministry in the local church. If walking in unity must be learned, then it follows that unity is based on sound doctrine. Now, I've already touched on this, but the next verse is going to expand on it. And so that leads me to my second main thought. Not only walking in unity must be learned, but secondly, walking in unity is based on sound doctrine. And this is something that is very, very important to me, very precious to me. I mean, I just spend a lot of time thinking about these things. And I want you to, too. I want you to love truth and love the Word and want to feed upon it. I want you to feel the hunger for the Word of God. I want you to know Jesus in deeper ways. And the only way you can do that is if you're willing to dig into the Word and to be a student of it. And really, that's all I am. I'm just a student of the Word because I'll never get where I know it all. Sound or accurate doctrine promotes spiritual maturity. Notice what he says in verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Now you notice this verse is primarily negative. It's, it's giving a warning and it begins by saying that we should not, that we should no longer be children. Now, obviously, we're to have childlike faith, but we're also to grow from 
baby Christians, right? You see how that works? Here's some things that Paul told Timothy. And I, I thought about having you turn here, but I think I'll just read them, and you can take note of them. Uh, for instance, in uh, 1 Timothy 1, and I just picked out verse 10, but it's, it's really verses 8 through 11. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, Paul said there in verse 10. He was talking to Timothy about sound doctrine. You know what? I've got to read that passage. I should have just done what I said I was going to do. So let's go to 1 Timothy. You need to see this. This is so important. It's 1 Peter 1.8, and the key is verse 10, but uh, I, what did I say, 1 Timothy? I'm, see, I make mistakes here, and I'm making a lot of them now. So 1 Timothy 1.8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, now get this, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with, with which I have been entrusted. He names all those sinful things. By the way, are those relevant to our culture right now? Oh, my word. We're surrounded by this. Huh. God's not surprised. They had the same problem in the first century. Paul's telling Timothy the same thing. The sexually immoral, the homosexuality, all the, the liars, all this kind of stuff. And he says, we need sound doctrine. Turn over, if you would, to 2 Timothy, a page or so, to chapter 4 and verse 3. 2 Timothy 4, 3. And remember, this is, we're getting down to the end of Paul's life. This is the kind of stuff that he's saying. 2 Timothy 4, 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of, of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So what is Paul telling Timothy here? Sound doctrine, sound teaching. It's essential. Turn over one more page or so to Titus 1. Titus 1, talking to the overseers, the pastors, the elders. I'll just pick up with verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I direct you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. I, I, I don't think I really need to illustrate this. 
Paul keeps hammering to Timothy and now Titus. Look at verse 13, Titus 1.13. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. He keeps using this word sound, which speaks of being accurate. Accurate doctrine guards against false teaching. Now let's go back to Ephesians, where we're supposed to be. And this accurate doctrine guards against false teaching, which grows out of the changes in culture. Now somebody says, well, hey, culture's changing, and we've got to change with it. Uh, wait a minute. We might have to confront it. We might have to live in the midst of it. But we're not to move our teaching and change with the culture. We cannot compromise truth. And what Paul is saying back here in Ephesians 4 and verse 14, that phrase, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, there's a lot of Christians that are, that's what they're doing. They're just wavering. Well, I, I said this, but now I think this. And I'm amazed that some of these guys that write books contradict themselves. They write a book, then they write another one that contradicts that one. I mean, yeah, there might be times where you need to correct something you said wrong, but did you move away from some truth and now you, you change? Which, which is right? So we're to have childlike faith, but not childlike gullibility. And you know, one of the things that I'm always concerned, I'm always wondering, do you hear me? You know? Because I know what it's like to sit and listen to a speaker. I know what it's like. And I'm always so fearful that I'm going to be boring, you know? There was a school teacher who was also an inventor back in the 1800s. And his mother was hearing impaired, and he was so concerned about her, and he wanted her to be able to hear. And then he married a woman who became hearing impaired, practically deaf. So now his mother and his wife cannot hear. Well, he was always dabbling in things, and, and so he was trying to invent a thing that would make a vibration and be able to send a message so that his deaf mother and wife could somehow gain something over their hearing. Well, he, he wasn't able to help them, but Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone trying to help his mother and his wife. Hearing is so important. And, you know, as we labor in the Word, you can hear it. And, and you're probably hearing my voice. And if you're not daydreaming right now, you might even be understanding what I'm saying. But there's something else to take it from that level to, okay, now I'm going to do something about it. I read a story about Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He was president for three plus terms way back in the 20th century. And he was really bothered because he had um, the responsibility to stand in these receiving lines and shake people's hands. And he felt like he was doing that all the time, but nobody was ever listening to him. And so he decided to try an experiment. And so uh, 
long line of people, and he began saying to everyone, I murdered my grandmother this morning. And their responses were, marvelous, keep up the good work. God bless you. And he kept saying this to every person in the line. I murdered my grandmother this morning. Well, it's great to meet you, President. You know, and the people did not hear a thing he was saying until finally the ambassador from Bolivia heard him and he leaned forward and he said, I'm sure she had it coming. <laughs> I know, it's terrible, isn't it? It's terrible. I shouldn't have said that. But you laughed anyway. So. But you know, isn't, I, I guess that's one of my concerns though, is how, how do we listen? And even though we hear stuff, how many times do things come in one ear and out the other? I know so much Bible knowledge. You know, my head is packed full of it. And you know what that does? It puffs up. That's what the Bible says. Knowledge puffs up. Oh, it's great to know stuff. But you've got to live it. That's where the rub comes. That's where the rub comes. Are you feeling that? We need sound teaching, but then we have to do something about it. The last part of chapter, or chapter 4, verse 14, uses an interesting word. It says, by human cunning. And you know that word for cunning? It's the word kubea. It's the word from which we get cube. And it has to do with dice. Isn't that funny? Uh, cubes go way back in history. And the word for cube became synonymous with trickery because of loaded dice. You know, people playing games of chance and swindling each other. And so a cube was a trickster type thing. And he's saying, we've got to be careful because some of the teaching we're hearing is trickery. It's false doctrine. And false doctrine involves trickery. There's going to be people who want to trick you into believing things that are not true. They're going to try to trick your kids into those things. Then he says, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He used the word there that's interesting. The word for schemes is the word from which we get method. It's methodia. And it's, it's referring to planned, systematic, and subtle error. And you know, that's what Satan's doing. He's setting traps. He's making deceitful schemes. He's using craftiness. False doctrine involves manipulating error and schemes of deceit. And we need to be aware of that. And the only way we're going to know when the false comes is if we already know, if we already hear the truth and are applying it. And that leads to this last thought in these last two verses. In verses 15 and 16, it speaks of walking in unity honors Christ as our head. In verse 15 it says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What is verses 15 and 16 saying? Walking in unity honors Christ. He has set the example. He set the example of speaking truth in love. And so, you know, it, it literally reads in the original language, 
truthing in love. It, may, it takes the word truth and makes it into a verb, which is really weird. But, uh, but in other words, we're so captivated by truth, we're living the truth, but we're doing it in love. It's one thing to know the truth, it's something else to speak the truth in love. How does that color our gospel presentation? Are we fire, brim, fire and brimstone preachers, you know, like Billy Sunday, throwing chairs around and standing on top of the piano and things like that? I've never tried that method, but uh, I don't think that's the way to do it. And when we're out in the, in the world, in the marketplace, on the street or whatever, how do we come across? Speaking the truth in love. You see, Christ set the example that we're to teach and to model. As we teach, we shouldn't have the attitude, well, I've got this all together and you, you know, poor you that don't. We're in this together. And Jesus set the example. He's our head. And in this verse, verses speak of the fact that it's Jesus that holds the whole body together. It says, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which it is equipped. You know, it's the picture of the human body. Jesus is the head, but all the parts, all the tendons and the muscles and, and the connecting tissues all fit together because the life of the Lord is what unites us. You see, we can have unity. We can have unity because Jesus is our head. But every member is needed to work properly for the body to be healthy. Just like the orchestra, if you don't play your instrument, what's going to happen? The symphony is going to be missing. Jesus is saying to you today, you are essential. Please don't sit here and go, well, if I wasn't here, nobody would miss me. You, you're wrong. We need every person. Remember, walking in unity honors Christ. Okay, so this is what I've been trying to say. I'm going to summarize, and then I've got a few take-home lessons. Number one, walking in unity must be learned. That means we've got to teach it. Secondly, walking in unity is based on sound doctrine, and we should be concerned about doctrine. It is important. And walking in unity honors Christ as our head. As we work to build up one another, to be with each other, to love each other in spite of our differences, we work together, Jesus gets glory from that. Okay, here's the take-home lessons. Number one, does the analogy of an orchestra fit the church? You think so? Is unity strengthened by diversity? We're all different, but he puts us together, and it's a good thing. Secondly, what are you doing to promote unity in the church? Are you sitting here saying, I'm doing nothing? I never talk to anybody. As soon as the service is over, I'm gone. I'm just, I'm here and then I'm gone. Or are you seeking to build up others? Can you say that you're walking in unity? The only way we can walk in unity is if we're loving one another for Christ's sake. Number three, how important is doctrine, the content of our teaching? Is it important? I mean, if I got up here and all I said was, uh, you know, some mundane thing that has nothing to do with the Bible, would you call me out on that? I mean, I've heard some sermons, not here, but I've heard some sermons and I thought, what was, what was the message? And, 
And if you hear a sermon and it doesn't require you to do anything, then what good was that? Let me ask you this. Does doctrine determine fellowship? What level of fellowship can we have? Are there different levels of fellowship? There are. But the kind of fellowship that you want to have in the local church, is doctrine important? I tell you, we're living in a day where doctrine is being pushed aside. Watch out. It's exactly what Paul told Timothy to avoid. Number four, how does the unity of our church reflect on Christ? When people come and they hear the sermon, they hear the music, they hear you talk afterward, they watch you interact, what does that say about Jesus? How about, how does unity of the evangelical Christians in general reflect on Christ? What's happening in the world right now? Evangelicals are splitting all over the place throwing doctrine to the wind, turning their, their practice around, renaming their churches. I mean, it's, it's something to behold. This is my last thought. Let's make the commitment to equip the members of our congregation by faithful and sound teaching. As long as I'm allowed to stand here, that's what I'm going to be about. Do your part to build up one another by faithfully praying and supporting one another. And I tell you, the Lord is honored when we do. Amen? One more word about baptism. If you need to be baptized, be praying about that. And we want to plan one probably in July or somewhere like that. Let's close in prayer. Close our sermon. Lord, we pause right now and just want to say, Oh Lord, help us. Help us to walk in unity. And I just pray that the things that have been said, that we'll only remember those things that line up with your word. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.